We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. What were some of the things that took y'all to the ER? Kind of tell us about like if, if someone's going through that and they're thinking, oh my gosh, well, what would take me to the ER? So what were some of those things? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what, what always took us to the ER is temperatures. Anything over 101 degree temp, automatic go to the ER. And so we'd have all kinds of other things from rashes to this, to that, you know, weird side effects to vomiting. I mean, all, anything in, in this game can take you to the ER. If you're concerned, you should go. We were always told as parents that, you know, you know, we're the doctors, you know, we're pretty smart at this, you know, we've spent our career studying this, but you're our number one ally. You know, we see you hopefully just a few hours a week or less, or, you know, towards the end, a few hours a month, you know, your kids, you know, you know, all this kind of stuff, but um, temperatures were, was a guarantee, you know, don't pass go, don't collect $200. If you had a 101 degree temp, you had to go to the ER because you had that port in place. So you have a foreign device in your body via the port. The port is right, um, it's on your, your chest breastbone, and then they basically wire it directly into the major veins of your heart, you know, plugged in right there. And so what happens is having a foreign body, a metal body in your um, body, if you get an infection, then the infections will attack foreign things in your body that aren't supposed to be there. Like, like a splinter, how your body will try to get rid of a splinter, you know, think about that on a massive, you know, much, much more, um, involved you know higher stakes situation with these ports because you know what and it's connected to and then if you get a infection there and it goes straight into your bloodstream you know right by your heart you know it can be you know very consequential up to fatal and then infections you know with a low immune system that can't you know get it under control can also be extremely difficult so um the temperatures were the big thing and anything at 101 required an immediate you'd go in they'd hook up to the port they give you a broad spectrum antibiotic to kind of the, the catch-all, attack-all, and then they would start doing um, tons of different blood work and cultures to try to pinpoint what the problem is so that then they could go to more of a targeted antibiotic or par- a targeted you know, therapy to fix the problem. But they would always immediately start with the, um, the broad, broad uh, brush you know, an- antibiotic. And so I remember times where we would have, um, you know, the temperature would start ramping up and, you know, we'd have five different thermometers in our house. And so we would try every which way. And, you know, my mom and we'd get her on the phone if she wasn't there and my wife and I, and we would go through, um, go through the symptoms, go through temperatures. You know, if it hadn't hit 101, otherwise you just went. Um, and we'd almost have what we call a tribunal to see if we thought it should go to the ER if we thought we should call the after hours. We had a, a, a card to the us call after hours. There's always a doctor we call it the VIP card because if you showed up in the ER, you showed in this card and you immediately got whisked to a, a, a room, which I guess was a nice thing to have from an ER, anyone that's spent time in the ER, but you don't want it like that. You know, the ER is not a fun place, but like it was just that critical that if you were in the ER, you know, that was the one, I guess, perk we had is that you would be seen pretty quick. You know, you would get a room quick, you know, things like that. But um, yeah, the temperatures are the big thing and they would get scary. Uh, scary too because you know if you're the temperature's raising then there's definitely a problem and then just what that problem is um because that once you get past you know the initial like get the chemo under control yeah connor was in remission within 28 days you know like like he should have been for all and so then the rest of the next two years and almost almost two and a half years was really reprogramming you know because you think okay we got him in remission we can stop but we had to do chemo for the next you know almost two and a half years to basically reprogram his blood and his bone marrow to produce um, the proper cells. And so that was, you know, the rest of that. Did he require a bone marrow transplant then? Connor did not. Um, Connor would get, uh, depending on where his levels were, um, platelets or blood transfusions, you know, because especially early on with kids with ALL and other leukemias, and I think most cancers, is the body will 
need extra, you know, it will eat red blood cells or eat platelets because the body's in overdrive or it's not reacting properly or the, the chemos are squashing those. And so the body will come deficient. The kids will become pale, no energy and things like that because they won't have the proper, you know, amounts of levels of red blood cells and things like that. So Connor would get blood transfusions early on. And again, he probably was an anomaly. He probably had less blood transfusions than most kids. But for his type, for ALL, you do not need a bone marrow transplant for standard phase treatments. Further on, if, if you had one or more relapses, depending on, you know, risk stratifications and your Ys, you know, DNA profiles and things like that, some kids is a secondary or a tertiary protocol further down the line with ALL may receive um, a bone marrow transplant, which is basically where they give a lot of chemo. They wipe your blood, your bone marrow completely out, and then they, they take a donor, usually a sibling or a family member, or sometimes they'll go to the national registry and it's a total stranger, but it has to match almost like a organ transplant, you know, certain statistical markers and, and genetic profiles have to match. So your body doesn't totally, you know, freak out and reject. And uh, so fortunately with ALL, he did not have to be there. Uh, there's also new technologies in called CAR-T, which they take your own cells, they re-engineer them to attack. Again, these are secondary or tertiary protocols for ALL. Hopefully you never get to that because while those processes kind of rebuild you and give you someone else's, you know, um, immune system and bone marrow, you know, there's, there's side effects, you know, it, it's not perfect. And so it's, it's definitely a risk reward. Now the AML, the other type of leukemia I talked about, they pretty much always start in bone marrow transplants. And so, you know, had we had gone that path, then we would have gotten a bone marrow transplant. But for Connor and most kids with ALL, especially initially, you do not go to a bone marrow transplant. But many people in the leukemia space will do other technologies like a bone marrow transplant or CAR-T. And then, you know, that's where like things like um, the uh, donor marrow from um, Be The Match, you know, is, is a huge organization, you know, that you know, they, they first look at family members because it's hopefully a good match. Siblings usually, um, parents are usually only half a match because, you know, half of my DNA and half of my wife's DNA, which is very different, obviously, because we're different people from different lineage until we, you know, met up in marriage and had kids, you know, there. So they look at siblings. Fortunately, we did not get to that. To that with us, we didn't have to get testing for our oldest son. You know, if we had future problems, you know, down the road with relapses or something, the bone marrow transplant could maybe be on the table but you know, not for us in our situation. I donate blood regularly now. It's kind of just one of those things to give back because it was so important. And I saw how much blood Connor needed early on to, to truly save his life. And again, we were pretty minimal, whereas I know some kids that just go through blood transfusions you know, way more often. But fortunately, we did not have to do that. We stayed very standard, um, especially after early on, and then really just, just went through you know, stage by stage, treatment by treatment. And then as we got, you know, into maintenance, which is after the six months, it's a very slow decline, mainly oral um, treatment. I think a few cycles in, that's where we realized too that we were going from the three and a half years to the two and a half years. So we got to get rid of a whole year of maintenance and it even stretched out how often he got intravenous chemo. At first it was monthly intravenous chemo via support and via his back. And then that stretched to quarterly and then the steroids, which was our favorite thing to get rid of, went from monthly to quarterly. And so then we, even though he only did them for five days a week, it would just give us those glimpses and the, the, re-remind us how intense the chemo, the, those uh, steroids were, you know. And they came right at the time with chemo um, that we would call them like hell week because we would just have the week of steroids and you just never know what Connor you would get. You know, sometimes very emotional, sometimes very hungry sometimes very loving, lots of no sleep. I've spent many a times up at four in the morning with him where he was just awake because of the steroids and things like that over those final two years and things like that. What was his longest stint as far as staying in the hospital? Did he have a, any stints that were like, felt like you were there for a long time or was that first initial five day one was kind of your longest and yeah. kind of kicked you into gear? Fortunately for us and very, again, non-characteristic for most families, um, the first one, the five days, which I think is lots of times one of the longer ones. But the uh, for us, the first one, the five days was the longest. Um, like I said, then two weeks later, we spent, I think, a day, maybe two. Um, I think it was just a day the next time. Yeah, it was a day the next time. So two weeks later, which happened to be on my birthday, uh, December 23rd to 25th, um, 
So, you know, we got diagnosed on the 11th, two days before Christmas, my birthday, December 23rd, we had our second um, ER visit. I think we were there just for a day. Yeah, we got out, we're home by Christmas. Um, and then I think that May of that year was the um, third. I think we got two, two and a half days that time. I think then we got a, like almost a year, 10 months. And then I think we got another day or two. Um, I don't remember the day or the two. And then we went 16 months and then literally right at the end, I think it was December before he rang the bell because we, we completed treatment February 13th of 2020. And they always warned us that, you know, even when we got into maintenance, that you're going to have that one weird hospital stay pop up. And so it was sometime in December of 2020, he actually got the flu, which obviously terrified us because we were wrapping up. I think we'd even were done with our final infused chemo. We were just doing oral chemo. And he got the flu. Um, fortunately, he'd had his vaccine that year. It did not prevent him from getting the flu, but it drastically lessened the intensity. Within 24 hours, he was fine. And it just so happens that um, that year, that so that would have been December of 19. Um, I, yeah, in fact, I know the day because it was December 23rd, my birthday. So two out of the three years of my birthday, December 23rd, while he was in treatment, we ended up in the ER. You know, and so one, I've never really loved my birthday anyways, because December 23rd is not the uh, best birthday to have anyway, so close to Christmas. Um, but then, you know, spending two out of the three years of my birthday in the ER kind of really just like, you know, gave me a sour taste. Obviously, there's nowhere I would have rather been the bit be with him, you know, because my birthday really didn't matter in perspective of that. But it's just one of those weird, you know, things that, you know, that talk about things that, you know, you impact because it could show up at any given time. You know, it was that another thing I think of like a big inconvenience. And again, like my wife and I really tried to balance our lives for us, for us, for our kids, for everything. Again, a big testament to my mom and my mother-in-law, how they, they held the things down. And they really also tried to encourage, you know, my wife and I to have times um, together because I knew how hard it was just on our whole family and things like that. So other notable um, ER trips is my wife and I were out on date night one night at a rock concert. Um, four of the five bands had played. We were we were, you know, had showed up at an Uber. We were enjoying our night, you know. So you know we were, had a few cocktails in. We get the call from our mother-in-law that you know she'd already taken his temperature four thousand times, and we had crossed that hundred and one threshold, and that she was on the way to the ER. Uh, we were right downtown, right by the concert venue. And we had to take an Uber over to the ER. And, uh, you know, we, you know, it was an interesting little run. You know, we probably, you know, weren't in, in a proper form. But, you know, we called my mom. You know, we explained that. You know, so we, we called mom like, hey, we should probably have someone that hasn't had a few drinks on date night, you know, at the ER with us. You know, you know, so, so we got admitted that night. You know, we're like, probably smelled like, you know, alcohol and, you know, all that from being out on date night, you know, doing the right thing and that. Another time my wife and I were out for a friend's birthday party in Vegas, you know, we still were able to, you know, get out with, you know, my mom, my mother-in-law kind of, you know, holding things down. And we always would have like backup plans. Um, you know, we, we knew we always, if we were going to go somewhere, we'd save the extra money for those immediate, these immediate emergency flights. Um, we were in Vegas that night about three in the morning. My mom texts, you know, we we're asleep. You know, but we always left our ringers on because of, you know, these kind of things, especially when our kids weren't right next to us. And the Connor started feeling puny. His temperature was going up about 0.2 every like 10 minutes. It literally gets to 100.8 on five different thermometers and it stops. Like I'm literally on, on the phone with the airlines and my mom's like, it stopped. You know, we were about to fly home. You know, it's three in the morning. I think we were going to fly out at seven o'clock that morning. And it literally got to 100.8, and then it dropped to 100.6, 100.4. I mean, literally, right when we were about to have the agent book our flights for that morning, it retreats. And then by 12 hours later, you know, he was pretty much back to normal. And and this is all you couldn't give Tylenol when like temperatures were throwing up because you or, or were going up because you could mask things and miss a problem. And so you know things you knew that could solve that, you know, you couldn't do because you had to see what would really happen. So you didn't mask and miss something. But, you know, so those are just some things that, you know, I, I think about, you know, my birthday is, I think about the time you're in Vegas, you know, for a friend's birthday, you know, and almost had to come back. Um, 
think about, you know, just those kind of things, you know, things we missed, you know, there was Connor couldn't get in the um, lake or, or oceans for two and a half years because the port and, you know, just nasty or dirty, not clean, you know, lakes or oceans are probably kind of gross anyways, but especially have a, a compromised immune system. So, you know, we were a big outdoors family and running boats and going on our friends' boats. We couldn't do that for over two years. So that, you know, that was something that it really impacted. Um, as you can imagine, you know, financially, you know, the cost, you know, we had to hit our deductible, out, 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 you know, every year, you know, so we had a high deductible HSA plan. So, you know, while it was a bargain compared to what those bills would have been, you know, we had to hit a high deductible each year. Um, just, just all the extra costs from going to the hospitals to, you know, time off work, you know, those are just some of the other things. Um, and again, we were super fortunate because we both had, you know, great jobs, very supportive bosses, things like that. But these are just things that, you know, really affect families. Most families, um, both, fa both, both family members don't go back to work, you know, in a cancer diagnosis. So lots of times a family loses an income, you know, so that's, you know, super challenging. You know, we were very fortunate that we did not have to we you know we were able to stay at work you know that's a huge thing a lot of families too um i think eight out of ten families um experience financial devastation either you know ruined credit all the way into bankruptcy and then the ninth family is is teetering on that line fortunately we were the one in ten families you know between just having you know good you know keep both of us keeping our jobs having decent insurance you know in, in some of just the uh insurance policies and programs in place, you know, fortunately some saving, definitely the communities, some of the better organizations in the, or, in the, uh, in the community, you know, were very generous to us. You know, our friends did go a GoFundMe. My work, you know, again, was really generous. My wife's work, you know, did lots of different things. So, you know, those things truly, you know, kept us, you know, allowed us to want to do a little bit of traveling, like I mentioned, um, allowed our kids to still maintain that, um, sense of normal, normalcy, um, you know, we were able to, you know, take them, you know, to do different things, you know, and really just try to get those experience where had the community or friends organizations not done that, we would have survived it and probably still not would have became one of those eight out of 10, maybe would have straddled that line on that nine out of 10 person and definitely would have been that, but, you know, people took care of us and we were very fortunate because that's something that usually financially devastates families, you know, it, it definitely set us back a few years, but, you know, we were more fortunate than that. Um, because I mean, the bills come crazy, the hospitals, you know, while they did a pretty good job, you know, there's the billing mistakes, the billionaires, you know, getting certain approvals for, you know, certain treatments, things that don't get approved, things you're wrestling, you know, and we had it pretty easy because ours wasn't very experimental. It was pretty much standard track, things like that. Whereas other families that had fallen off, you know, protocols and things, you know, it got a lot more challenging, you know, a lot more, you know, less financial options available or insurance wasn't covering things, you know, things like that. I remember, you know, just some of the, uh, the highlights I remember, um, from a financial perspective, just to put it in perspective, Gavin or Connor's first uh, five days in the hospital. I think the initial bill was over $175,000, you know, just to put that in perspective for five days. I remember one bag of chemo they hung on him, even after the insurance had negotiated down their price. I can't remember. I mean, it was tens of thousands of dollars. And still, even after insurance paid their part, you know, it was well into the mid twenties, you know, so we're talking a very nice car for most people, you know, that I saw, you know, hung on a, hung on, hung on a pole and pushed into him in 10 minutes, you know, there was $25,000 or so, you know, of medicine, you know, to save his life. It just, just all, all the, all that kind of stuff is just insane. You know, what I lost track at, you know, what his total medical bills were. My, my plan changed midway through. And so I lost some of the statistics and two, I just, I quit, you know, carrying with somewhere between, you know, half a million to a million dollars, you know, total medical bills. And that's cheap because a lot of these kids, you know, since he was ALL standard, you know, minimal hospital risks or, or, or minimal hospital stays, you know, I probably kept our number low. I think most people end up, you know, well over a million dollars in bills, you know, when it's all said and done, obviously with deductibles and negotiation, you know, the health insurance, you know, renegotiations and stuff, those numbers fall, but you know, pretty crazy. Um, also in this mix, um, I, I mentioned, you know, I was in a layoff culture, um, you know, so I, I had to, you know, survive that over those three years because I was like, I couldn't imagine losing my insurance and having to get a new job and insurance and time off work. Fortunately, my, again, my job held, held me down and, and was amazing to me. 
Um, but I was supposed to change jobs the day after he was diagnosed. I had been made an offer by a company to actually escalate my career from an individual contributor to management. And I had to not take that job. Um, it because uh, at that, it was a startup company that didn't even have health insurance in place. They were paying people's COBRA and they were going to get it there. Whereas I wouldn't have been eligible for a long-term, you know, disability if I needed it or um, the FMLA, you know, the federal program that gives you leave and protects your job. So, you know, I, I had to pause some career, career endeavors, you know, I mean, obviously my wife's career, you know, kind of heads down where who knows what she could have done, you know, with that, you know, and so we really just had to kind of get in that huddle formation um, stance for two and a half years and really, you know, just try to, you know, maintain stuff, try to balance life, try to save money in case things happen, but also try not to miss opportunities in case we didn't have that time, you know, in, in case there was a relapse, in case treatment was as successful. Because like I said, we had the most um, treatable or one of the most treatable diagnoses and yet 10% of kids still didn't make it. I mean, it's still a pretty heavy, pretty, you know, pretty heavy statistic. I mean, and we know people that, you know, with that same diagnosis that didn't, whose kids didn't make it, you know, I know two, two families specifically. And I mean, you know, it's super real, you know, and, you know, I knew a lot of families that were having success as well, you know, and so that helped. Um, I had a, a friend of a friend introduced me to a, a male who was mid thirties, I think was a personal trainer, had kids of his own, you know, that was a big success story that gave us hope. Um, little things, you know, throughout the journey gave us hope, you know, from organizations showing up, especially early on. Um, I think it was like week four, they came to our house, they brought us a check, they were very supportive, so they'd be with us the whole way. And that was a game changer, because at that point, we didn't even know if our interest was, or our short-term disabilities were being paid, we were burning our savings, you know, and that was just a momentum changer. We didn't know these people at all. A friend of our friend, you know, just put turn us onto this group. Um, it was the end of the year. They just happened to have a little bit of extra money in their budget that year. And they picked us up as an extra family. And that was a game changer. You know, they checked in with us just to make a wish trip a year later. I mean, we were, I think, at, at a pretty low spot. Connor actually's numbers are falling. We almost didn't know if we were going to make it that trip. And then he just miraculously popped up, you know, and just different things like that. Even um, the summer before he ended up tre uh, in treatment, we had a, a trip scheduled to go see my wife's brother in California had been relocated there. And so we're going to do all the amusement parks and stuff like that. And um, his numbers are doing amazing for that trip. And the doctor was even like, you know, if you guys want to risk it, if you want, I'll give you the permission to, because his numbers have been so good for so long to let him in the ocean. He's like, I'd prefer him to be like waist deep. I'd prefer him to be in a cleaner section, not some gully or, you know, some inland where it's kind of swampy, you know, I want moving water and all that. And he's like, you're in LA. He'd mapped out all the uh, children's oncology. You know, he's like, you're going to be there for a week. If you're going to do this, you need to do it like on day three of your trip, day four tops, because, you, you know, we need to, you know, if something's going to happen, it's going to happen in the next 48 hours. He's like, you know, and there's some risk. He's like, but I think we're good. You know, we have an extra antibiotic, but it's also, we have to balance this. You know, there's as much life because you know, the doctors are like, there's as much life about doing those things that are normal, being with friends, taking on things, you know, getting those those sparks and you know those are the things that as our family was tipping down you know or, or down like like something would show up um and so that you know that was big another thing too is i told you i gained a ton of weight um i think 30 30 pounds 25 pounds my anxiety was at an all-time low i just wasn't feeling it um and i got connected with uh, one of the local organizations you know the big national organization leukemia lymphoma society they needed a um person a person, a child, um, they, they have a man, woman of the year uh, contest where they, it's one of their big fundraisers and Leukemia Lymphoma Society does a good job of supporting local families. And so just helping with, with uh, getting people prescriptions, getting rise to treatment, gas cards, things like that. Um, things that my family didn't need or qualify for with them, but they, you know, they help, you know, the most uh, affected families. And they were also big on research. And so fortunately, you know, they came to us about nine months in. we kind of stabilized, you know, we got our financial, you know, house in order, you know, our insurance, you know, had all played out. And so, you know, we didn't have those worries, but, you know, our biggest worry at that point was research, you know, what if this didn't pan out right? You know, what if, what if Connor relapsed? We needed treatment to continuously to get, get better and better. 
and so we connected with him. And um, as part of that, he became the boy of the year for the man woman of the year campaign in 2019. And uh, Connor and I started speaking at events there. We raised, started raising a lot of money, you know, to help with the local families with research, things like that. At the same time, the um, local team and training uh, program, also part of Leukemia Lymphoma Society, they do fundraising via athletic events. And so while they knew I was, Connor was the boy of the year, they asked if I wanted to ride because they knew I enjoyed cycling before this had happened kind of as a hobby. And they're like, you should come ride Lake Tahoe with us. We're doing a hundred mile bike ride. We're going to raise uh, money for awareness, you know, and I was like, okay, I'll do it. I was literally just looking for a positive, you know, outlet. Um, kind of, you know, one of the reasons why I'm here doing this podcast today is after that first six months, I had to turn outward because I had so many negative feelings, so many negative, you know, thoughts. I'm, I'm a big extrovert anyways. And I was like, I have to make a positive out of this. You know, we signed up for a few clinical trials. They did extra research on Connor's blood. You know, we did some psychology stuff where we did all these you know, questionnaires and tracking. And it just felt good to know that we were helping. Um, I started donating blood just to give back. And so the more I could get myself involved, we would do that. Um, the 100 mile type, uh, bike ride might have been a little bit of a, a overreach. Um, I, like I said, I, I, I liked riding a bicycle for exercise. Um, it, it was enjoyable, but I think at that point I'd only ridden 25 miles around Lake Hefner a few laps, pretty flat, you know, maybe a little wind depending on the day. And again, I'm 30 or 40 pounds or probably 25 pounds overweight. Haven't been eating good. I'm stressed out. And I said I was going to do it to the point where I started taking people's money because, um, you know, it, it's part of that is, you know, getting your friends and family and people in the community to, to donate and support along with me, you know, put my own money in, you know, into it. And I remember my wife about 100 days before, um, this is March, the weather's still crappy in Oklahoma. It's, it's rainy and cold and I haven't trained. And she's like, you've been taking people's money you've started your blog and you said you're going to do this, um, but you're still pretty out of shape, you know? So I don't, I don't have any right to talk either. You know, I'm, I've been right there beside you, but uh, just reminding you that, you know, you've made this commitment and uh, you're just not going to jump on that bike and do this. And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. And so next thing you know, like early, uh, my race was the first week of June and here we are in March and I hadn't really been on the bike except for like a couple laps around Lake Efner and, so then I joined the team and the team like, you know, circled around me, um, got me, I, the weight started coming off, the training started happening, um, the miles started stacking up. And then I think in like early May, I actually crashed my bike, um, skinned myself up pretty good. Um, I hit a railroad track and kind of threw me onto the ground, got road rash pretty good. I thought I was going to derail because the, uh, the timing is pretty, pretty, uh, thin as far as when I started. And yet I, uh, I still got back up with, with, patches that diabetics usually wear to, you know, heal their skin and stuff. And, uh, started doing that. And I completed, um, Connor completed that, uh, the boy of the year commitment that year where Connor and I, Connor and I tag team spoke at events about three weeks prior. And then that June I joined my team and, um, completed, completed a hundred mile bike ride through Tahoe up the mountains. We raised millions of dollars, you know, collectively in that organization. Sorry, it chokes me up. I mean, it, it truly changed my life to like, to see like all the negative, you know, kind of left, left it on the field that day. And I mean, it, it was a game changer. I mean, since then we've been drastically involved with LLS. Again, I did uh, as a team member to Connor's pediatrician this year, um, we, for his man woman of the year, we got runner up to a very strong competitor who won it. Um, I think in most years, Dr. Pocolo would have won it. But I mean, we all won that day. I mean, just the numbers we had, we had a record-breaking numbers, but you know, that that was just a big thing to be part of as well. But really just pouring it in. I'm, I'm also a member of the uh, Family Advisory Board for a clinic, you know, just trying to make the patient experience better. Um, I do a, I'm a support, fa a support family member for the Oklahoma Family Network. Um, so I now support families that are going through this. I've just taken on my first family that's a month into their their journey. I mean, and, and in many ways, you know, here we are almost three and a half years later. Um, I've forgotten a lot of it. And then on the flip side of that, I remember it and those conversations and the ER and those treatments and 
all that like it was yesterday. And so in a way, it's, it's, it's very rewarding because I do it. And then at the same time, I mean, I still fight the, you know, I've, I've done more positive than negative, but I still fight the negative connotations of it every day. Um, one, I'm very, I put myself into it. Um, and sometimes I question my sanity for doing it because in some days it's like re-ripping off the Band-Aid. And some days when I'm even helping in these orgs or making the impact, it, you know, it strikes that raw nerve you know, things like that in other ways. I mean, it's what saved me from myself, you know, and then I see that I see the flip side of it. My wife, uh, she's a big introvert or not a big introvert, but she's an introvert anyways. But um, she stays out of the limelight. She lets me kind of support and do my part. You know, I, I'm the one that kept my family's blog um, for Connor's journey the whole way. My wife just, I mean, I think she did it once and then, you know, no, didn't make her less of it. It's just, it was so much for her that she just doesn't have the energy, you know, to do that. And so, you know, we still live with it. You know, we're 16 months post-treatment. Um, we now only go every two months for follow-ups. We do blood work. Um, that was pretty agonizing. The first year, um, those appointments, really definitely the first eight months were completely agonizing. One, um, Connor rang the bell February 13th. So that was a year before COVID, or I'm sorry, a month before COVID fully hit. So, you know, our expectation was we will ring the, the bell. We got his port taken out a week later, which was pretty quick. Most families wait six months to a year in case of the relapse. We, um, because that previous flu thing, um, when he got the flu that day, they told us we were gonna be in the ER every day that he had a temperature. Um, in the flu, you get the temperature. Um, when my oldest son had had it two years prior, he had a temperature for 10 days. And so we planned to be in the ER for 10 days. Fortunately, we only had one day attempt and it never came back. So we were lucky, but that, that was also kind of a, a pivotal point. Like we're getting that port out the minute they say we can, even if we re-need the port, you know, in the event of a relapse or something like that, then we'll have much bigger problems to deal with that day, but we got to get the port out. And so we did, again, we did that, um, I think a week or two after February 13th when Connor rang the bell, he recuperated in a day or two, you know, then March 1st, a local organization threw us a really cool party um for the end of treatment and then that was kind of like our symbol to our our family our friends that this is over we're going to go live a normal life we're not going to look back and then COVID hits and um it you know we're right back in it you know we had prepared for this um you know we just started making plans to hit the lakes and the rivers and the travel and you know basically get back time and then COVID hits and we had to lock down with the rest of everybody because connor's immune system hadn't fully rebuilt and so we locked down tight. We didn't see anybody for two months. We didn't even see my mom, who was, you know, a, a major part of the caretaker. We didn't know what COVID was going to do, just like everyone else. Um, we had groceries delivered. We had Amazon deliver stuff, you know, if and when it could. We didn't leave our house for two months, practically, you know, because of it. And so we just, while we were done, you know, we weren't done. You know, we, we carried forward and, you know, we were terrified because we didn't know what it would meant to Connor if, if COVID would have come, you know, his, his immune system was rebuilding. We didn't even know what COVID would mean to us. And so we locked down to about summer. We, you know, we started, you know, feeling better. His numbers ramped up, you know, there. And so we kind of cautiously started, you know, resuming life. But, you know, with the rest of the world, you know, we're, you know, we're better and closer to it, but, you know, not fully there. And then too, um, like I said, we, our last appointment where we rang the bell was February 13th. The next appointment was, I think, March 15th, right before COVID fully hit. Um, and so we all went, my wife and I made a commitment that we would always be there at the appointments together in case we got bad news. Cause it's pretty, you go take blood work and then you go wait in your room for the doctor to come see you and you wait 30 minutes for the blood work to come in. And literally, you know, that it was scarier being done with treatment for the first eight months to a year than it was being on treatment once we got past, especially that first six months, because after six months in a maintenance, it was pretty smooth sailing. I mean, there are some anomalies or some minor course corrections to be made, but for the most part, he did well. And so we didn't have to worry. And that the, um, the chemo was kind of that safety net. You know, if you think about a trapeze artist at the circus, you know, if they fall with the safety net under, they hit the, hit the net, they bounce around, they do a cool flip, it kind of looks cool. You know, chemo's kind of becomes that safety net, even though chemo's nasty and ugly and it's got its problems, you pretty much, and it's not true for everybody, but you pretty much not going to relapse. You're pretty much not going to do it with chemo. You know, you at least have that kind of stimulating or 
squashing any problems that may be occurring. Um, some people still do relapse on chemo, and those are, you know, extreme cases. I mean, and my heart breaks for those because that's just the worst, you know. And but for us, it was like the big test is coming off chemo. It's you know taking off the taking away the safety net, but still throwing yourself up on the trapeze, you know, net. And then now you're doing those flips and you miss the bar. It's just concrete at the end. I mean, that's kind of the analogy of what it was. And so for that first eight months, you would walk in, you know, because most kids relapse within that first year. I mean, and it, it would make you sick. And so we're like, well, we'll go together to these appointments. After that first month, they're like, sorry, only one parent at, at, in the clinic at a time, one parent. And, in, and fortunately, we were at the end. So we we're just hopefully not ever. We thought we, we truly in our heart of hearts with his success, the doctors thought that we were going to be done, but you just didn't know. And so my wife and I debated we were going to switch off. And I finally was like, I don't know if. Uh, it would be awful to be the one to get the news by yourself, but it would be equally awful to not be there and you get the news. And so, so I, I, I decided that I was going to be the one. And I mean, it ate me up for eight months, nine months being there thinking that I could be the one to get the news with Connor, how I would react. I mean, I, rehearsed I prepared I practiced the straight face I would the minute that doctor would come in I could hear him come in on the hall I would try to get him distracted make sure he was on his phone like if I could hear them coming down the hall and then I would literally try to study that doctor when they would walk in like to see how their mannerisms were how their eyes look just to see if they're about to drop bad news on me and So the longest 30 seconds of your life, like waiting for that. And then sometimes you'd catch a doctor. Like I told the doctor, luckily I saw our doctor five out of the eight times. So I was like, you tell me the minute you walk in. Yes, no, you tell me immediately we're good or we're not before you talk. We can talk about anything else afterwards, but I have to do that. And I mean, I would make myself sick. I would be so anxious. I usually didn't sleep the nights before those appointments. And it's somewhere in the middle, obviously still a lot of therapy, a lot of, you know, just talks to my therapist, you know, just a lot of figuring it out. It's like, you know, and I had a doctor tell us, it's like these blood work, like, like she said that most, um, and this wasn't even our doctor, but we just wanted the other doctors. She's like, most parents catch a relapse, not in a monthly appointment like this, that things start happening. They're like, you know what to look for. The kid will start being lethargic. You know, some of the symptoms will start showing up. And so at least it helps. She's like, this is just really the secondary kind of backup to what you'll figure out if it happens. And so somewhere around the eight or nine month mark, you know, and also just with the techniques with my therapist and stuff, it at least started getting easier and um, better. You know, now we're 16 months. We go every other month. And then after the two year mark, it will go to every three months, every four months and six months, etc. cetera. Um, hitting the one year was big. The relapse statistics probability took another big drop um you know there and so now we have one more year where then it's it's almost like normal stats so the two-year mark will be huge there and you know so that's what we're working on it still you know is challenging coming to those appointments it still is challenging every day i mean not a day wakes up or not a day goes by where i still don't wake up and i still don't think about connor and i still don't think about leukemia i now hopefully do not think about it 100 times a day for 15 times a day, but there's not been, I cannot think of a day since December 11th of 2017 that I have not thought about it multiple times a day. And then too, like, I also not only do I not think about it with Connor, I also think about it with my oldest son, like things that are normal for most families, you know, from leg pains, because that's a symptom of leukemia. It's also a symptom of kids just growing up, you know, and having, you know, that kind of stuff from headaches to you name it, it can be a symptom. Connor, you know, if he gets dry skin sometimes, just like most kids, if he scratches his neck, he can put a red red mark on his neck. The petechiae, which I talked about, you know, which is broken blood vessels, which is like um, that. Just just this week, um, he'd scratch his neck. And, I mean, it just freaks you out. I mean, it almost throws you into what I'm sure people with, you know, PTSD or it brings my anxiety up to, to full, full fold because you just see it. And... Luckily now, like I can tell, like by the size of his nail, 
and if it's like a straight line scrape, you know, uh, but it's a full on like analysis. And then you try to be passive when you see things like that. And I'll check his legs. I'll check his body for bruises. And he's a six year old boy and he goes to the parks and he goes to stuff. And so he has bruises and it's like, it's like a full like interrogation. Do you know why you have these bruises? Do you have that? And so still to this day, we do that. I mean, it, it's still even my myself. If I don't feel 100%, you know, it's that worry. And so, you know, I, I battle this stuff and we keep it, we keep it pretty much realistic. I, we, we've calmed those, those, those negative voices and those dark feelings and stuff, but th those are there and those will always be there. Connor will go to the clinic you know, the rest of his childhood life till he's 18 at the Jimmy Everest Center for um, adult stuff. He should go his whole life um, and work with an oncologist. What he chooses to do as an adult, you know, that's up to him once he's 18 years old. I hope he'll stay there. You know, fortunately, if, he's, if he gets 18 and we don't have any um, issues or any problems, then it's pretty safe to say that, you know, he should be good. But, you know, it's one of those things he'll have to always worry about his whole life. I mean, when he goes to college or when he's an adolescent, you know, he'll, he, uh, we've also been told that he has to be more mindful. You know, we should definitely encourage a healthy lifestyle, eat, you know, exercise and eating properly. And, you know, he probably doesn't have the luxury that a lot of us go to college and, you know, have those, those wilder party years, you know, he probably needs to limit his, you know, his drinking and just things like that. You know, these are just all things that like, I mean, we should all do, but, you know, Connor will definitely, you know, I think as our doctors have kind of said, he's already had that one kind of one strike against his health. You know, we've, we've had a hitting with tons of, you know, nasty chemo drugs and he's had a major thing. And so these are just things that like, I don't think about often, but long-term I do, you know, I mean, it's, it's also forced me, you know, for my bike ride on, you know, my wife and I, we try to eat better. We try to be more healthy, you know, so that we're here as long as we can, you know, so we can help guide him, you know, I think two thirds of, of children that are greater that, you know, have had to go through chemo, you know, they'll have long-term effects even into adulthood. Now what that means, you know, hopefully it's mild effects, you know, and there's also so many things too, that we'll never know. Is this chemo related? Is this cancer related? Or is this just, you know, the genetics or what you've been dealt with, you know? And again, there's so much that's unknown too, because even in my lifetime, um, a kid, like, like there's things I can see, we think about like Neil Armstrong, the, uh, the uh, astronaut, he had a, a child, die from a, a cancer you know like things like that uh the bush senior bush senior's family they had a child die from leukemia you know now these are these kids were obviously you know in, in much earlier years where the treatment wasn't there but even in my lifetime i'm um, where connor is well into the 90 percent from long-term survival in my lifetime i'm 42 years old and, and as early as 40 years ago it would have been a coin flip on whether connor would have lived you know it would have been less than 50 percent you know and Treatment still has not advanced that much. They're still using drugs that were approved 40 and 50 years ago to treat these. We haven't hardly had any modern um, drugs or any modern treatments really happen over these last 40 years. Only 4% of childhood pediatric funding goes to childhood cancer. I mean, it sounds awful because, you know, it's, it's children, you know, but, you know, it's, it's, it's really rare there. It's not near as rare. I think one in 85 kids now no, no, I'm sorry, less than that one. And I think 40 some odd, 47 kids will be affected between their first and 21st birthday in childhood cancer. And I think that number's only, you know, getting, you know, less, you know, one in 40, one in 30s, you know, you know, soon. So again, that's why my um, work with Leukemia Lymphoma Society is so important because they help families, you know, that's a small piece of it, but really it's the research, you know, in the after, uh, after effects and longer term treatments in case, you know, we ever have to face that again, or, Two, I hope no family ever, ever has to go through what my family does. Unfortunately, it happens every day, you know, but it's like, that's, that's kind of my work as well is that hopefully, you know, that there truly is a day where it's just a pill or it's, it's, it's a much less treatment or there truly is, you know, no childhood cancer because we figured that out, you know, especially in the leukemia lymphoma space, but, you know, really in all of them. Another thing too, why I like LLS is um, blood is the easiest thing to study compared to you know, heart, heart tumors, you know, they can take people's blood pretty easy. And so even a lot of uh, other cancer treatments come from the work that's being done in, in the blood space. And so, you know, that's gotten near to, near and dear to me as well as just trying to help out for the future. You know, I mean, I even worry about, you know, me in the future or my family, you know, because I'm sure it's there somewhere genetically, you know, what's going on. And so, you know, it's just the things that like, 
I took for granted, you know, beforehand. And then that December 11th, you know, many, many, many layers of my um, innocence have been stripped away. You know, it, it happens as all as we grow, but man, you get a, a childhood cancer diagnosis like this, it strips away like layers of that, of that innocence that people usually don't realize. And so it's just a different world. And so I'll never see things, you know, the same. Fortunately, in many ways, it's better, you know, um, or I don't take life for granted. We live every day. You know, we, we do things, you know, and we obviously have to balance, you know, we have to save for retirement in the future and college, but we also aren't as great. You know, we try to balance that, you know, we try to live, you know, we try to be more active, you know, we realize every day is a gift and we try to, you know, give back and hopefully make things better in the future. But it's tough. I mean, without the positive stuff, I'd be a complete mess and I still have my messy moments, but, you know, it's getting better because of that, you know, but it's, it's a constant struggle. You did a beautiful, beautiful job um, sharing your story, sharing your journey, sharing what you're doing um, as far as for the future and investing in, in the lives of families who are now walking in that path. And, and then obviously bringing awareness for Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. So I'm, I appreciate it. I really appreciate you because you were just so thorough. And if you could tell a family one thing that's just fresh and walking that just heard the diagnosis, what would you tell them? Well, a couple of things. One, um, what I would tell a family, you know, going, going to it is it will get better or easier some way, somehow with time. Cause that first month I think is the worst. I've even had people that have had, you know, pretty negative outcomes, you know, either poor treatment, you know, or they're still in the fight or, you know, that have lost kids. You now, obviously the loss or pretty adverse is, is a pretty extreme and, and I'm not qualified to, to speak to it. You know, I, I've taken my mind as far as I can there, you know, to, to wrap my head around and the what ifs and I still have just scratched the surface and I can't even imagine there, but like, even in the worst, I've had most people have told me that even, you know, where the outcome I'm at or, you know, the, the, the worst outcome, that the first days were the hardest. I mean, that it didn't get easier, especially, you know, if they had, you know, very, very negative at the end, but that it would get better. And it wasn't that the, that the situation got better because some, some kids don't get better, but they, they at least rise to the occasion where that first week to month, you just aren't prepared for it. And in some ways you never get prepared for it, but you at least um, acclimate to it. And then I also tell families to, because it's, the mo it's one of the most lonely things you'll ever do. I tell people though that don't go at it alone. Obviously, wrap yourself around with resources. Um, I think those that have resources, you know, in their corner, and it could be a few close resources to a lot of resources, and it's usually some mix in between. But the more resources and the more help you can um, accept, I think the better. Or the more help, more helpful. We were very prideful, and we'd always taken care of things. Everything we'd ever had, we you know earned our own for the most part. I mean, you know, we have a great family and things like that, but, you know, we weren't rich or we weren't overly resourced or, you know, minus my mom being a nurse, we didn't have, you know, I wasn't a doctor, you know, or some, even some doctor's kids get it, you know, at least they have that knowledge and things like that. But really it's just, I ask for help, take the help, be, be direct to everyone wants to help, but people don't know how to help. People are freaked out by it. Um, and do it. You, you also, it was rewarding. You know, I got really close to people that I never thought I were. And there were some people that I was super close to that just didn't show out like, and didn't show up like I thought. Not that they didn't want to, it was some, it was too much for them and things like that. You just had to take the help where you could get it. And you had to be very direct because a lot of people are afraid to ask for the help, but people want to help. I mean, especially early on, people almost needed to help to make sense for it, to feel better for themselves. And, and you know, people carried that burden with us. And, you know, that was one of the best pieces of advice is people were like, accept the help, ask for the help, command the help direct the help and do that. And, and again, to find help, you know, like I said, therapy was another huge thing for us. I always tell people to exercise, eat right, find your time for yourself. Even if it's five minutes um, early on a date night for my wife and I, it was just getting food and having the kids put down. And it was just not talking about cancer. It was, you know, things like that. It was, you know, it wasn't anything fancy. It wasn't leaving our house. And then we would just do that because we had to, we had to foster the relationships we had and involve ourselves in everything we could and just take care of ourselves. So, you know, that, that would be it as well. And just know that it will get better somehow, some way, even if it's drastic. And maybe it's just that you're getting better because you get the hang of it. And the, the days still suck and it's still challenging, 
but you'll at least get better because you'll rise to the occasion. And I also tell parents too, to trust their gut, you know, because, you know, a lot of people are afraid in our culture, you know, doctors are one of the, you know, the highest callings and the smartest people. And they truly are. I mean, they, and doctors give up, you know, a decade or more of their lives to study where the rest of us, you know, do our degrees and go to work and have fun and buy our first cars and our houses where doctors are so grinding in school, you know, and they, they give a lot, you know, but, you know, they, they only know part of the picture, you know, you're the parent, you know, that, that parental instinct comes in and things like that. So, you know, that's another thing too, is I just encourage people to use their voice and feel confident, even when they don't understand the, the terms of the technology or the medical side, you know, that sixth sense or that feeling will come in. And so I encourage people to do that. Wow. Good, good advice. Good, good, very practical advice. And that tribe seems to be very important, building that tribe that's going to surround you. Um, Absolutely. Well, Neil, I cannot thank you enough. This, this has been so wonderful. Um, not that I enjoy talking about cancer and, and all of that, but I know that your words are going to be powerful and families are going to need to hear and glean um, encouragement and education and all of that. So I, I really do thank you because I know this was a long conversation for us. So you gave up a lot of your time today uh, to oh, be able my, to do this. My pleasure. Well, thank you for doing it. And thanks for letting me tell the story. And obviously, thank you for bringing the awareness because if nothing else, if one person hears any of their donates blood, joins to be the match, helps a local organization or just helps a family. I mean, from something simple from a meal to texting someone just to check on them to a coffee at the hospital. I mean, to from small to big, every single one of those things meant something. I mean, you know, I've, I had some people show up with some, you know, generous checks that obviously helped and were very tactical to solve problems. And just that coffee to that person to listen. I mean, you know, in those down times, you know, just any, any one of those, I encourage anyone listening to just help out in some way, you know, whatever way, um, cause it's, it's, it's burdensome for anyone that knows a family too, you know, it's, and it's okay to feel, you know, that, and it's okay to, um, to feel awkward. And, you know, it's, it's all that, even families I know that have lost a child, you know, like people are afraid to talk about it. When I, all those families tell me they want their, their, their child to be remembered. They want their, you know, they want to be asked how it is. They want to be normal. And so, you know, I just encourage people to, you know, do that reach, to lean in, to ask, to help, you know, to volunteer, even if you don't know a family, donate blood, be the match, donate to an organization. There's a lot of great organizations out there. So any of that is just, you know, things I'd encourage people, you know, to do. Neil, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.